if you have something to call out, you should do it because change needs to come from somewhere. Welcome to Repicture, a podcast of the everyday projects that explores evolving conversations on the ethics and practices of visual storytelling. No industry is perfect, certainly not ours, and it's become increasingly commonplace for people to call out individuals and publications for their missteps. The internet and its various social media platforms have given anyone with a username and a little courage the opportunity to speak their mind, calling out, cancelling, and flat-out cyberbullying. You see it all these days. But I wonder, what are the roots of this phenomenon and will any of it actually make a difference? Today, I speak with three people who have found various ways to critique the industry, all with the same goal of making it a little bit more fair for us all. I'm your host, Tasneem Sultan. I'm also a Saudi, Muslim, consider myself a person of color, and there's the addition that I come from an underrepresented religious minority in my own country. Many people who are my fellow citizens don't even know it exists. Perhaps all of these factors raise an angst in me that sometimes comes out in the wrong place at the wrong time. Just listen to episode one of our podcast if you really want to know how it came out on the National Geographic stage in 2017. I myself have not perfected the art of calling out, nor do I really know what I think about it most of the time. When and why do people need to hold others accountable? And more importantly, is there a right way to do so publicly? Khadija Farah, a photographer based in Kenya, caught my attention last year with her witty Instagram stories, which she frequently uses to highlight issues in the photojournalism industry. She has a brilliant way of mixing a bit of humor with her posts that tackle serious issues. For example, in a post criticizing Magnum Photo Agency, she interrupts some serious calling out with what she calls an intermission, a picture of a mini salted caramel Magnum ice cream bar. Yeah, so I, I see that you always mix this thread of sarcasm with humor um, in your tweets and social media. Is that a personal choice or is there another reason? Um, it's how I deal with a lot of things, um, honestly. Uh, it's how I deal with a lot of frustrations. I kind of mask it with jokes and humor. And also I think it's that thing where um, as women you're – kind of afraid of coming off a bit too harsh or um, like offending people or hurting people's feelings or something. So like you can have a super serious statement and then be like, LOL at the end, <laughs> um, just to kind of soften the blow a bit. Yeah, I, I feel like if you have something to call out, you should do it because <sighs> change needs to come from somewhere. From what I hear from a couple of my friends, the reason that they don't call things out is not necessarily because they don't feel like they're in a position to do so. It's because that they don't want to like offend their clients or offend their jobs. And I'm just like, your clients don't really care about you if they don't care about this issue that you care about. We silence ourselves a lot, just kind of trying to keep the peace and trying to keep, you know, our contacts and is it 
professional or not professional to do this. And I have a big enough safety net where it's, I'm not, I don't feel like if I lose jobs, I'm going to say lose the roof over my head. Um, and so I don't really mm, care about coming off as aggressive as I used to. But obviously, yes, there is a perception as um, especially black women that we are, you know, aggressive um, just when you state a regular opinion. Um, and I can't deny, you know, that that exists. Yeah. And then I also am very weary of being put in a position of being sort of a spokesperson for an issue um, or for the entire like population or something. Um, and I'm not like, I don't speak for all Muslim women. I don't speak for all Kenyan women. I don't speak for all Somali women. I'm speaking for myself, but also very aware that other people are dealing with the same issues. Um, it gets very tiring. Um, to do that kind of work, which is why whenever I shoot off opinions, I kind of shut shut off my socials or whatever um, for a little bit. And I'm just like, well, you guys can deal with whatever that is. Is there much preparation for you emotionally to kind of like, I'm putting this out there, goodbye? Mm, <laughs> no, it's just kind of, I, I wake up one day. <laughs> I just wake up one day with like, maybe frustrations have just kind of been piling on. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, and then it just kind of, I write it out or I rattle it out. Um, but yeah, there's not really much planning that goes into it, except for sometimes I really like data and I like using, um, you know, numbers cause you can't really argue with them. So I tend to do the whole like women photograph thing where you like look at how many photos have been taken by such and such and which it's really kind of really does the trick and really lights my gets my fire going what are the frustrations that you think deserve being called out and where do you draw the line representation i don't think we can call that out enough and Again, just because people put out their opinions doesn't mean that they that it's their job to educate you. A lot of times people want me to write full on like books explaining the exact reason why um, I feel this way. So, you know, to satisfy your curiosity, you should just get on Google and search all the things and learn all the things because we've kind of just given you um, like spark notes. Have you ever received apologies? Yes, I have. This is going to sound horrible, but a lot of times they feel disingenuous because it's kind of just to satisfy their own um, ego or to make themselves feel better. Um, and they're like, yes, I understand my organization is totally doing this and I would really love to write this wrong. And I'm like, cool, you know, thank you for that. And then you wait six months and nothing. 
I want to think that people do care and that they and that they are sincere in their apologies, but I judge an apology based on the change that I see afterwards. So if, you know, a couple of months from now you have, you know, a more diverse uh, group of people on, you know, your board or whatever, then I'm like, yeah, they listened. That's really great. Thank you for your apology. But an apology just to say sorry, I just, uh, you can keep it. There are photographers that I know who are my friends and who have been called out and who I have called out um, for, you know, their poverty porn type pictures. Um, Photographers on the continent, uh, on the African continent to be specific. Yeah, I have seen them change and I have not seen them uh, submit the same kind of work and it's more it's much more I don't know I feel much more like hopeful when I see that kind of change instead of just like a I'm gonna take down this photo sorry did you approach them privately yes privately publicly sometimes some people just need to hear things out loud (laughs) and it's okay even if it's your friend it's okay even if it's your friend to approach uh, um, publicly? <laughs> the thing is, they normally become my friends after. The thing that I, I really kind of commend you on is that it is exhausting. I know, like even with me talking to, to strangers that I don't know in person, explaining how racist, insensitive their actions or their words were, it really kind of, it, it, uh, it not triggers me, but it, it exhausts me. And I feel like when you do it on social media, for sure, you don't know the people that you're talking to, the audience you have, you probably most never met. But when they reply with racist remarks and stupid remarks or sexist remarks, it's like, uh, that means I wasn't successful. I didn't really do anything. At least that's how I, I kind of carry that baggage, which is not great. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to fire those opinions off and then just like leave it. <laughs> And just let them, let people deal with it however they will. While Khadija is part of the new generation of call-outers who frequent social media platforms like Instagram, our next guest, Awesome Rafiki, has been questioning the industry for much longer. In 2008, while working full-time as a freelance photographer, he started writing critiques on his blog, The Spinning Head. At the time, he says he was one of the very few people challenging the mainstream media and its darlings publicly. It was just a place where I was working out what was happening in the industry uh, because obviously it was affecting me and it was affecting the kind of work that I was being asked to do. And I was trying to think through why was it that journalists, why was it that we were only doing certain kinds of stories? What, What did they mean? How were they constructed? What were they really showing us about the world? And most importantly, like what was the gap between my experiences in the field and what I understood about what was happening in the field and the way narratives were eventually published when they finally got to New York or they got to London. So yeah, so I started writing on this blog, but when I was writing in 2008, 
I think nobody else was writing this kind of stuff. And there were good reasons for that, of course, right? There were good reasons for why people didn't write this stuff, which I think haven't really changed. Uh, there were very much the same reasons why people don't critique the industry today, which was basically a fear of losing um, work because the gatekeepers to the... It's a very small industry, which is something I think it took me a while to recognize. The photojournalism and even editorial photography or editorial journalism is a very small community of gatekeepers and also a very small community of uh, very influential, still largely male, white photographers. And you, to, by going up against one or by critiquing one, you're effectively critiquing the entire structure. You know, it's, it's never just... And this, I think, is very much about, very much sort of why... People would, when I was writing, I have tons and tons of emails from people saying how much they may have agreed with something I've written or asking me to correct it, but they were, you know, supportive of what I was saying, but they themselves wouldn't step up and say anything. So if you want to stay in the industry, it's hard to be uh, a critic and stay in the industry. As I said, it's a very small place and everyone is friends with everybody. And uh, criticism is not uh, something that, is of course within a certain boundary, but this is why I think that what is now being called call-out cultures had to have a role, right? I mean, there's a reason why people go outside the formal spaces because the, in the internal spaces are closed to any kind of meaningful conversation. And because these spaces are so hierarchical and the gatekeepers are so few and the number of people vying to get work are so large that they don't, you know, if they just throw you out the door, it doesn't make a difference to them. There's another amazing photographer who will come along and work for half the fee. And, and, you know, this has sort of been the state of the industry for 20 odd years. Did you see it make a difference? I don't believe that I was read widely enough to make a difference. Also, I think I wasn't writing to make a difference. I think I was writing simply to understand for myself what was happening and also to let others understand what they were getting into. So I don't, I never felt that I, I had the influence, which I know I didn't, to change this powerful space. I mean, we are talking about, you know, a, a young sort of new, and I mean young in terms of years in the industry, unknown American photographer who's working in, you know, a few areas and doing kind of his own thing. I didn't have a, you know, after like 2007, 2008, I wasn't really moving around in the spaces to make a lot of noise. But I don't think I was ever writing to change. I think I was writing to be difficult. And I was writing for others who were arriving and or working in the industry. So they could understand what people were getting. Especially people from South Asia, Pakistan, India, young photographers. I was already starting to do workshops then. And I wanted, a, I wanted people to not be naive about what they were getting into. Right? It was this thing I always tell people that, to not to, you know, just because you get a double-page spread in Time magazine, you shouldn't be fooled into thinking that that's just about the quality of your work. It is also an indication of how your work fits into a certain politics. So I didn't have, I don't have a problem with you working for Time magazine or getting your double-page spread. But I wanted people to understand what the meaning of that really was and what it meant about your work and where it fitted and what kind of politics it was resonating with. So the problem isn't just that photojournalism often promotes harmful misperceptions of the people and cultures it documents, 
but also that an underlying reason for this is how these misperceptions often affect who gets to tell these stories, which photographers get hired, and thus blinders firmly in place, the problem becomes self-perpetuating. I wish I had entered the industry before September 11th. And I think we always, especially as Americans, as Americans and Americans working with American media, we will always have to keep, you know, even within journalism, 9-11 as a, as a particular juncture. I entered the industry after 9-11. And so, and it was absolutely no doubt that after 9-11, as a brown Muslim male, I was stereotyped by the editors. Absolutely no doubt. It's definitely in the U.S. And this was, in fact, one of the first problems I had because I didn't, I, I was not interested, and I'm still not interested, in bringing a brown Pakistani Muslim photographer who is only sent on assignments to Pakistan uh, to cover brown Pakistani Muslim terrorist Taliban. And this is exactly what ha ended up happening. And the irony is, of course, that I'm more American than Pakistani. And the other irony is that they didn't realize that they're indulging in something, you know, which what we would call elite capture. They just assume because I'm Pakistani, I should be able to do stories about any kind of Pakistani anywhere, regardless of class and ethnicity and economic divide and so on. And which is which is a tragedy because, you know, my working in, say, you know, in underclass communities in Karachi is as big a challenge as any other outsider arriving because I don't share anything with these people either. I mean, OK, I may share language, maybe some habits of eating and what have you, but they look at me with the same kind of suspicion as they would look at some outsider because I represent a certain exploitative class, a certain kind of arrogant uh, ethnic uh, type, even within Pakistan, right? So these, these distinctions were lost on editors who just sort of saw me as this one representative that they, who speaks English so they could use me and so on. I remember having this conversation. I had this idea to do a story about juvenile justice courts in, in Paris. And uh, I pitched it to to an editor at a journalism grant-giving institution in Washington. And the edit, there was an editor there who looked at me. He goes, well, how are you going to do a story in France? You don't speak French. And just 20 minutes earlier, the same editor had been telling me about all the years that he had spent working in the Middle East, in South Asia, uh, with no real knowledge of Urdu or Arabic or any one of the many languages. But it didn't occur to him that if he can work with fixers, and translators, which is how 100% of these people work in the world outside the English-speaking world, I could do the same with a French translator or a French fixer. It was just that it was a really good project idea, but he couldn't see how I could do that. He didn't even want to discuss that with me any further because, and you know, this became frustrating. And I'm not trying to suggest that people shouldn't be working in it or because obviously you know people have to everybody wants that success and what have you but i think it's important for us to enter this media intelligently and not naively and end up reproducing the white supremacist imperialist colonialist frames that western media operates with and that we end up operating with you know when they inevitably send us back to our geographies you know you're going to go to a World Press Masterclass, learn how to see the world through their eyes. And that would be a tragedy. That would be a tragedy. I think this is precisely the tragedy of 
how things don't change is that, you know, it's not about, hey, World Press Photo, get more African photographers and make them look, see the world through Eurocentric eyes. It's actually about getting more African photographers so that you can learn to see the world through their eyes. Khadija and Asim have clear thoughts on how they believe the industry should be improved and have found ways to spread their ideas. But to gain perspective and context on the history of cancelling and calling out, I turn to John. In all of my work <laughs> as, a, as a historian has been um, shaped by the fact that I'm African-American. When we think about my work with photography and my concern with both stereotypes and the way that stereotypes have been combated, of course, that's shaped by my 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 reality as a, as a black man in this world, as a black man in a world that is still shaped by white supremacy, still shaped by racist ideas about people like me and my family, and my friends and my community. So there's a, yeah, there's a personal investment in this. Absolutely, you know, this is not abstract for me. History professor John Enwood Mason rejects the mainstream idea of cancelling altogether. I think when we were initially talking about this episode, I remember you didn't like the term cancel culture and you wanted us to use the word reckoning. Can you share with us the difference between cancel culture, calling out and reckoning? What does it mean to you? There's been some fantastic writing recently on the way that um, the idea of cancel and canceling has been appropriated from African-American culture and brought into mainstream culture um, in the United States and I think globally. And it's been brought in, I think, largely in bad faith. Canceling within African-American culture meant that, uh, you know, you were canceling somebody because, man, they really did something bad, you know, um, and, you know, you just couldn't be their friend anymore. These days, people who use cancel are usually making an argument that people broadly on the left are trying to end the careers of people who have done something that angers them. When we look at that something, however, that something is usually that they've done something really stupid and sexist. They've done something really stupid and homophobic. They've done something really stupid and racist. And I reject the idea, you know, when canceling is taken outside of African-American culture, I reject its use because it's almost always in bad faith. And it's always, almost always for political purposes. And it's almost always for putting down a progressive critique and protecting people who have said something deeply reactionary or done something deeply reactionary. So then what would you choose if you can use any word? Would it be call out or? No, I don't think, I, I don't know what I would use. I would say protest. I wouldn't use a phrase like call out because that diminishes what people are fighting for. So you would agree that it, it's very much related to race? This whole idea of cancel culture, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's related to race. It's related, obviously, to gender. It's related to the demands 
of folks who have been marginalized to no longer be in the margins, but to be at the center, right? So, you know, this long history of the call of African-Americans that, you know, we are Americans too, we're just as American as you are, right? And we belong at the center. You know, Latinx people, Asian-Americans, of course, Native Americans. We've all been marginalized, but, you know, in that one step, two steps forward, one step back kind of way, all of these groups have been moving towards the center. And, you know, American gender relations have, of course, changed tremendously, and, and women are no longer as marginalized as they had been. I teach at a university, which until the 1970s was men only, right? So there has been change. There's been change in, in, the, in, in a variety of different ways. And all of this is, is deeply frightening to a large portion of the white community. You know, the idea that they will have to share America with people who don't look like them the presence of marginalized groups moving towards the center, occupying positions of power, and in one case, occupying the strong, the most powerful position in the land. Oh, this has been so deeply upsetting, and they're looking for ways to fight back against it. I, I would try to kind of now rein in it, I guess, as in, in the photo industry, it seems that a lot of the very well-respected photographers have suddenly come to a wall of reckoning with their previous work. What is the best way to work around such issues? It's really hard, right? It's really, really hard. A lot of these photographers are this extraordinarily skilled and produce images that are both uh, aesthetically very pleasing but also tell a story in incredibly powerful ways. A lot of them have done work that has played a progressive role in, in, in society. And some of the imagery that they have made has reproduced and reinforced stereotypical ways of looking especially at women, people of color, other marginalized groups. But we can't say that they've all done horrible work. They haven't, you know. Um, but I think it's important to look with it, look at the industry that they're working in, look at the world of which they are a part, the world of visual representation, the world of photographing other people in documentary and photojournalistic ways. When we think of power relationships between marginalized or colonized people and the person with the camera, too often they simply haven't had any rights, and I think that's wrong. Any case, so this is a world of photography that's been shaped by white supremacy, shaped by colonialism, shaped by the largely unquestioned right to make pictures of anybody anywhere. And this is the world that photojournalists and documentary photographers have worked in. But they've worked in it without acknowledging those roots, without acknowledging the way that those roots have shaped the way that even in the 20th and 21st century, photography operated. 
you know, and you've got to be aware of those roots. So then what are your thoughts on private versus public calling out? Now, I'm still not going to let you use that, that phrase calling out. So <laughs> give me a concrete example. You don't have to use names, but give me an example of the kind of thing you're talking about. So there are many, whether it's editors or photographers, who will photograph in a very colonialist manner, mm. in a way that's taking the photo and also with it a lot of power and voice from the person that they're photographing and their photos and their work has been um, now after being successful and winning awards and being, you know, these amazing names that we all have grown up to know. And now their work has been questioned. I think it depends. I think it's contextual, right? It depends on the context and the circumstances. So, it's now several years ago, a photographer who I know vaguely, but like, sort of so on social media, we kind of like each other on social media. This photographer posted on social media some photographs that were just really, really bad. <laughs> this photographer had driven through an African-American neighborhood and without even getting out of the car, had sort of, as a sniper, taken pictures of people in their neighborhood. And a lot of these photographs just depicted African-Americans as hanging out on the street, maybe drinking or smoking a doobie, just generally being lazy, bad citizens, right? And, but this was a posted on social media and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this privately, you know? And so I sent the photographer a note, right? A private note. And I said, Hey man, you know, I like your work, but and let me tell you about this. And uh, it was well received. I think the photographer really got it. If that same series of photographs had been in the New York times, I don't think I would have been, private about it. I think I would have been public. I said, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. And I also would have, you know, I would have been <laughs> criticizing not only the photographer, but whoever photo edited the damn thing and the times itself, right? You know, when you have a, a platform that is as powerful as the New York Times, well, maybe you do now say that this is public, right? Um, because we, this is a powerful institution. I think it's important for us to, you know, point out instances where institutions, whether they be newspapers, magazines, networks, or photo agencies, which have their own kind of power, that, that becomes public. Magnum's been in the news, and I think... When you talk about Magnum, you are talking about power, even though members of Magnum do not think of themselves as personally powerful people. They have shaped the way that we see the world, especially we in the West see the world. And by see, I mean not only the way that we look at the world, but the way that we understand the world, 
right? So an institution like Magnum has had a powerful cultural impact. And when you have a powerful cultural impact like that, you have become a public institution. And when you do bad stuff, you should expect it to be public and you should expect people to point it out and you should expect the critique. What is the personal harm or gain that can actually have on a person that's doing this reckoning? Let me try to answer it this way. I teach at a university that was racially segregated until the 1950s that um, Native Americans and Latin ex-Americans and African Americans could not attend this university until the 1950s. And then it was just a tiny trickle of people of color until the end of the 1960s. This university was literally built by enslaved people. Now, they were not the only people who cleared the land of forest. They were not the only people who leveled the land. They were not the only people who dug the foundations. They were not the only people who laid the bricks. But they were most of the people who did all of those things. Once the university was built, many of the faculty members themselves owned enslaved people. And that enslaved people did the cleaning, the cooking, the gardening. This university depended on the labor of enslaved people until the Civil War when slavery ended, but it has depended on the labor of poorly paid African Americans and other people of color ever since. And until the 1990s, the university basically ignored all that stuff. But starting in the 90s especially, there's been pressure from students and pressure from faculty members that have compelled the university to not only acknowledge, you know, all of these things, but to make them public, to make it part of the university's history. And in the case of a memorial that has just been built to enslaved workers, to put it on the physical landscape, right? That this is this is who we are. And, you know, and unless the university acknowledged that this is who we are, these are our roots, this is part of what shaped us. We can't escape that any more than a, an adult can escape their childhood, right? You know, that my childhood continues to affect me. And I feel that every day, right? Well, same for an institution, right? Your infancy, just shapes you. It builds a culture. And that culture, in the case of my university, University of Virginia, was reinforced until very recently. And, and so you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to make it public. You've got to examine it. And you've got to see how it lives on in the present. Because the history is not back there somewhere. The history is right here today. The history doesn't go away. Reckoning, which is what has happened with that past, is something that now allows the university to think about what does this mean for our future, right? So now that we know this about ourselves, 
how does it affect what we do from here on out? Now, I am by no means saying that we have become a perfect university. I am by no means saying that we have overcome our history of patriarchy and white supremacy. I'm by no means saying that. But I am saying that we've come a long way towards creating the conditions where we can make some real progress, right? And I think that what I've said about the University of Virginia absolutely applies to the photo industry broadly and to the institutions within it. You know, that if we reckon with a past that has been shaped by white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism, if we reckon with that, if we see that in the history of this, these, these visual forms, if we see that in the actual pictures that have been made and are being made, then, you know, we can create conditions where real progress can be made. I really admire, I acknowledge, and I celebrate the work that photographers of color, that woman photographers, that their male allies, I, I celebrate the work that's being done. And, um, you know, it's work that started generations ago. And, you know, we have to acknowledge our ancestors um, our ancestors of color, um, our woman ancestors who have been fighting this fight. I think that the greater entry now of women and people of color into the industry, plus social media, which I think is really important, has added tremendous energy to the call for reckoning. Thank you so much. This is by far one of my favorite talks and it's so <laughs> yeah please do uh, more of these <laughs> uh well thank you very much i mean you, you never have any idea if you're making sense so uh, no i i honestly you've made me feel like i want to go back to college now and i want to listen to lectures like this well we would certainly love to have you here at the university of virginia I think it's really important to have the John Edward Masons out there and the awesome Rafikis there, the Khadija, you know, because I look up to them and I think they steer us on the right path of like how we present ourselves and how we represent others in a way that's full of respect, in a way that's full of dignity and empathy. And we need to always be reminded of that. My sincere thanks to Khadija, Asim, and John for taking the time to have this conversation. Suggestions, comments, ideas for meaningful reckoning? Send us an email at repicture at everydayprojects.org. Visit repicture.org to check out other episodes of Repicture. And if you liked what you heard today, please share, subscribe, and leave us a review. The Everyday Project is supported in part by Open Society Foundations, Culture and Arts, Code for Africa, Africa No Filter, and Adobe. This episode of Repicture was produced by Ellie Gardner, Niasha Kadandra, and me, Tasneema Sultan. With the support of our team at The Everyday Projects, 
Austin Merrill, Peter DeCampo, Rebecca Gibeon, Rogera Njagi, John Edwin Mason, and Danielle Fiasano. With music by Blue Dot Sessions and original theme by Hassan Hajeri. <laughs> <laughs>